that will be going on throughout probably most of the summer. And uh, does anyone need a study sheet? Did anyone not get one of the study sheets tonight? Noah? <laughs> that makes sense. Noah got here before me, so there were no sheets in the back. All right, so we're going to try to do all three of these questions, but I'm not holding my breath at this point. So uh, why don't you go ahead and turn to 2 Samuel uh, 13. 2 Samuel chapter 13. We'll dive into this. Uh, this was one of those questions that um, <laughs> it, the way it got asked, I had no idea where to even look to find the answer because I didn't even, the passage wasn't familiar to me. So in the future, if you guys write questions, just point me in a direction. I know who asked it. <laughs> but I'm like, man, I don't even know where this is. Like, I figured it's in 2 Samuel based on the characters. But uh, 2 Samuel is not a very short book to dive in and find the answer. So um, that's okay. We got it. It's all good. Yeah, <laughs> it's all good. So the question that we have for tonight, and especially too, because I'm sure just hearing this question, you're going to be like, I don't even know where this would be either. Like, it, it wasn't a story that really stands out unless you're in the middle of reading through 2 Samuel. And uh, then it would stand out. So the question is, why did Joab want to bring Absalom home if he was just going to ignore him until he, Absalom, burnt his, Joab's, field? So we're not going to take the time to really read through all the context. I have it on the paper. You can definitely go back in and read through uh, 2 Samuel 13 to really get a better context of what was going on there. Um, but basically, I just have the highlights here on the paper. So in 2 Samuel chapter 13, you have Amnon, who is one of David's sons, and then you have Tamar, which is one of David's daughters. So you have Amnon is in love with his half-sister, Tamar. So he's in love with her. He's like lovesick over her, doesn't know what to do. So your next point here, Amnon's friend then devises a plan for Amnon to rape his half-sister, and he then follows through with it. Amnon follows through with this plan. I know it's hard to wrap your mind around. I find it hard to wrap my mind around. But this is what's going on here in the book of 2 Samuel. So he ends up, you know, his friend gives him this plan. He's like, yes, I will do that. So he like acts like he's sick, and he wants Tamar to bring his food, and then he sends his servants away so there's no witnesses, and he can then take advantage of his half-sister, and he does. Your next point, once he's done this, once he has raped his half-sister, it says that he hates her and he sends her away. Again, I really can't even, <laughs> I can't begin to even process how things like this could happen, but he then he finally gets her and then he, he's like, okay, I don't want you anymore. I hate you. He, he sends her away. She's really upset about this. She's like, this evil is worse than the evil that you've already even done unto me. Now you're going to send me away? So... Um, so once he's done that, he, he now it says that he hates her. Now he hates her even more than the love that he had for her before he had her. It's really weird when you read through there. Um, so it says that he hates her and then he, he sends her away. Your next point, no one, including King David, does anything about this for two years. Nothing is done about this sin that has been committed. David doesn't confront it. No one else confronts this. So for two years... Nothing is done at all. But it's one of those things that, and you know, we all can definitely get this way. When we feel like somebody has gotten away with something and it can kind of burn inside of us, 
Like you want justice to come to them, you know? Well, that's kind of what was going on with Absalom, who would also be a brother in this mix. You know, it's, uh, I believe he's, I can't remember right now. I think he might be the full brother of Tamar and only a half brother to Amnon also. But he's, he's definitely been upset about this over this two-year period, stewing about what has happened to his sister and that nothing's been done to his brother about it. So your next point, Absalom, he has a plan to kill Amnon, and then he does carry through with it. And it's another one of these uh, scenarios. He ends up coming up with some, some reason to get um, Amnon and all the brothers and everybody out into this, to this field to, I can't fully remember the context right now, but he gets them out into a field to, uh, that's his plan, ultimately, is he's going to kill Amnon. And, um, and then he does, he carries through with that. Somebody comes back and reports that, to David that all his sons are dead. So David's really mourning. And then he finds out, in fact, that not all of his sons were killed. It was just Amnon that was killed. So your next point, David then, he mourns for Amnon. And then Absalom then flees for his life because he feels like, all right, now that I've done this thing, now that I've killed my brother, now my life's on the line, so he flees. So Absalom, he, he then runs for his life, and he is gone for three years now. That's your next point. After three years, the pain of Amnon's death was less, and that's basically what the Scripture says. We can actually jump in um, about here in chapter 13, verse 38, and it says, So Absalom went to Geshur and was there three Years And then verse 39, it says, And the soul of King David longed to go forth unto Absalom, for he was comforted concerning Amnon, seeing he was dead. So after these, uh, these three years go by, now David finally feels like, okay, now I'm ready to see Absalom. Like his heart is yearning to go see Absalom. But this has taken three years now that he's mourned the death of his son, knowing that you know, Amnon committed this heinous sin. Then Absalom answers it by committing a sin, running for his life. Now David's down essentially two sons over this three-year period, but it takes three years before we find out, all right, now David's heart is longing to go forth to see him. So your next point here, which gets us into chapter 14, Joab uses a woman that David would be sympathetic toward with a story of family estrangement. Joab finds this uh, an elderly woman to basically concoct this story. See, there's a whole lot of like deceit going on in all of this scenario. Everything, everything, even, even trying to get Absalom back home. There's just a whole lot of deceit going on. And so Joab basically comes up with this story and he finds this elderly woman and says, here, I want you to, here's the story I want you to tell David that, you know, act like it pertains onto your family life. And David will be sympathetic toward it because, you know, David, David definitely made a lot of bad decisions when it came to his kids. He really did. It was, he had a real blind spot when it came to his own kids. For him being the man after God's own heart, man, he had a big blind spot when it came to his own children. And so, so Joab uses this woman to tell this story of this family estrangement. And David says, we've got, to get your, we've got to get him back. We've got to get him back for you, basically. And then it's revealed that, um, that basically this story was for you. David even says, um, is, is Joab's hand in this? <laughs> because he knows, like, okay, I see what's going on. You're telling this story because this is what is happening in my life. So 
that's kind of the context, to set that context of what happened of, of Absalom. Why was he even gone in the first place? It's because he killed his brother because of what his brother had done. So really to get to the core of the question, why did Joab even want to bring him home? And then why did he in turn just ignore him until Absalom finally burned his field to get his attention? So that's, that's kind of the context of what was taking place there. So your answer then is found in, in one of the verses we already read. But here's really the, the core of the answer is uh, 2 Samuel, starting in verse 39 into 14, verse 1. It says, And the soul of King David longed to go forth unto Absalom, for he was comforted concerning Amnon, seeing he was dead. Now Joab, the son of uh, Zeruiah, perceived that the king's heart was toward Absalom. So on your paper here, the reason that Joab wanted to bring Absalom back was he knew, Joab knew that David wanted Absalom back. He knew that David's heart was longing for, for his son to be back home. And think about it too, in the context, David is the king of Israel. So David's got a big, big job he's doing, right? He's leading an entire nation and he's distracted. He's distracted at this point because his son is gone and his son's not dead. His son is alive and he knows he could see him but he hasn't gone out to see him and he wants Absalom to come back home and we'll find it wasn't even so much that they could fellowship together, but it's kind of like, man, it's kind of like my kids, right? This kind of, kind of works this way. Oh, kind of in the reverse in that like if I'm home and I'm distracted, say I like last night's a pretty prime example as I was finishing up the study sheets last night for today, Claudia's gone at discipleship. And I'm like, okay, it's just me and the kids. I can put on a TV show that will distract them. I can finish this up, no problem. Not the case. <laughs> they wanted to know just that I was there and that I wasn't distracted. They didn't want to talk to me, but as soon as I would start working, daddy, 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 what? Check out this, okay, cool. And then they would watch TV. And then I would wait a minute. I'm like, okay, start working on it again. Daddy, daddy. It's like that. It's like they just want to know that you're there. You know what I mean? And that's kind of the vibe I get from David here. Like he wanted him home. He didn't want him in that far country. He, it, it's like, you know, I don't know what's happening to my son out there in the world. He's far from home. I just want him here. Then I'll at least kind of know, know where he is, know he's safe, know that everything's okay. So Joab knew this about David. And David was distracted. He couldn't be a good king. He couldn't keep his focus on the things that were important because his heart was toward Absalom, his son. And Joab knew David very, very well because your next point, Joab was David's commander in war. I mean, they were tight. He was the main guy, like the leader of the army. That was Joab. I mean, Joab was the guy that did everything. Joab was the guy that did the dirty work, right? Most of us are familiar with Uriah the Hittite and what took place there right? That, that David sleeps with Uriah's wife, gets her pregnant, tries to get, brings him home from war, tries to get him drunk, tries to get him to, to go home. He does get him, get him drunk, tries to get him to go home to sleep with his wife to try and cover up his sin. He won't do it because Uriah's a good godly man. He says, no, I can't go, go sleep in my own bed in the comforts of my home with my wife while all of my brothers are out here fighting in a war. I'm staying here at the gate of the king's house. And so David tries again and he still won't do it. So what does David do? He writes a letter that says, hey, 
I want you to put Joab at the front of the hottest battle. And when it's at its, its peak, I want you to draw everyone back and let Joab die. Or let, let Uriah die. And Joab is the very man that he sent that letter to. I mean, Joab was the man. He did all David's dirty work for him. So he's his commander in war. And Joab sees what's going on here. So he wants to bring him home. And another, another point here, Joab was also David's nephew and Absalom's cousin. So there has to be at least some part of him even that, that kind of wants him back. Your next point, Joab was loyal to David and he wanted to protect him. He wanted to protect David. Like I said, he couldn't focus. He couldn't, he couldn't do the kingly duties that he had to do. And your next point, here's what Joab also knew. He knew that having Absalom grow bitter in a distant country could bring about rebellion. That's your point, rebellion in Israel. You know, Joab's off there. He feels like, I mean, let's be honest. If we can put ourselves into Absalom's shoes for a minute, even if it's your half-brother that has raped your sister and then totally dejected her, you kind of get where Absalom's coming from in wanting to kill him. You kind of do. So Absalom is thinking, I did the right thing. I, seriously, I did what my dad should have done two years ago. So he's growing bitter. Bitter that no, he thinks no one cares. He's growing bitter that he feels like he's done the right thing and now he's an outcast. That kind of bitterness can definitely begin brewing rebellion. And if you're familiar at all with the life of Absalom, you know that it sure did breed that bitterness. It didn't show up here in 2 Samuel 14, but it sure shows up later. And it did breed a serious rebellion in Israel. So, Joab knew this. He knew that having Absalom out there was going to start growing that, that bitterness and that rebellion in him. So David allows Absalom back. But get this, then David won't see him for two years. So now five years have passed. Five years. This is a father and son. Five years. A father and son where a lot of people thought Absalom should be taking the throne. I mean, this isn't just... One of David's, you know, I don't know how many kids he had. I don't know, let's say 100 kids. This is Absalom. This is beautiful Absalom that you find here in, uh, in 2 Samuel 14. It talks about it. So David lets him come back, but then David won't see him for two years. That's why I get that sense that David really just wanted him home, but didn't really want that fellowship, at least at this point. He just wanted to know that his son was home, that his son was safe, that bad things weren't happening out there in the world. So he allows him to come back, but he doesn't see him for two years. So that's part of your answer as to why, uh, why did he bring him home? Why did he bring him home? That's why he brought him home. Because there was, I imagine David was a mess, and Israel was probably in a bit of chaos at that point, just because David couldn't focus. We don't know, because these two chapters skim over like seven years like that. So, but you've got to imagine... If you're in David's shoes, too, that this is messing with you every day. It's your child, and he's gone. So next, to kind of answer the, if he was just going to ignore him until he burned his field, that kind of falls under this consequences um, section here. So here's, here's some of the consequences and why it outflowed and why I really believe that Joab ignored him. So to start everything off, and we touched on this before, David neglected good parenting with his sons. He, he did throughout the, the life of his children. He just neglected good parenting. 
It's like he was, I don't know, trying to protect them, or it's the, you know, even the today mentality, I just love them too much to tell them that's wrong. Like, it, it's insanity. It's insanity. But David had this blind spot. I mean, he's, he's a godly man. He's a good man. The man after God's own heart, but he had this blind spot, and he neglected good parenting when it came to his sons. He did nothing to Amnon, and here's what I believe why. Because if you were to just rewind two chapters, you're going to find that's where David had his sexual sin with Bathsheba. I feel like David probably had a hang-up because he felt like, I've committed sexual sin. This is the natural progression. Who am I to tell my son when I've done this terrible thing too in this same way? David had sexual sin. So he probably had a hard time saying anything to Amnon because of his own sin. I believe that's why he did, why he didn't say anything to him. So then, now he overcompensates by not seeing Absalom at all. <laughs> and again, it's just this bad, this bad judgment when it comes to parenting. And this is harmful, harmful as your blank. This is very, very harmful behavior. You know, parenting, it is not for the faint of heart. It really isn't because it's hard to have to say the hard things to your kids. It's hard to have to discipline your kids day after day after day. It's hard. It's not joyous at all. But this is what happens when you say, you know what, I'm just not going to do it. Just not going to do it. It'd be easier if I just don't do it. But the problem is the hard stuff comes way later and it comes even harder when you won't do it early in life. And when we find, too, is if you were to read through 2 Samuel 14, Absalom, he is a vain, spoiled brat that will do what it takes to get his way. This is Absalom. Let's go ahead and look at, let me see if it is verse 25. Yeah, let's go ahead and read uh, 2 Samuel 14, 25. It says, but in all Israel, there was none to be so much praised as Absalom for his beauty. From the sole of his foot, even to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. He was apparently a very beautiful man, and he knew it, and he knew it. So, he's very vain, and he's been a spoiled brat. I mean, there, there's, there's not been consequences to the things that he's done wrong. So he's spoiled. So your next point, he grew bitter over the two years that he was at Jerusalem. He did grow bitter. And why I believe that Joab didn't want to see him is because he does not forgive him. I believe that Joab does not forgive Absalom for what he did. Forgive is your blank. He does not forgive him. So jo from Joab's point of view, he thinks he solved the problem just by bringing Absalom home. He's like, I don't forgive the guy. I don't want to see him. I don't want to talk to him. But David can't function as king, so I'm at least going to bring this guy home. And then everything can get back to order over here. But I really don't want to see him because he probably didn't forgive him for what he, what he had done. So what we find next, and we'll go ahead and read verses 29 and 30. Since Joab now won't see him, now two more years have passed, right? He's home. I mean, imagine go back to your hometown and your dad won't talk to you for two years or your cousin or like, it would be kind of weird. I can't believe that he would really let it go two years, but he did. So in verses 29 and 30, it says, Therefore Absalom sent for Joab uh, to have sent him to the king, but he would not come to him. And when he sent again the second time, he would not come. Therefore, he said unto his servants, See, Joab's field is near mine, and he hath barley there. Go and set it on fire. And Absalom's servants set the field on fire. He's a brutal man. <laughs> and he burns Joab's field to get his attention. Because he's a spoiled brat. Because he's vain. Because he thinks he can do whatever he wants as long as he's getting his way. 
So he's brutal. He just says, all right, Joab won't come see me. I'll get Joab to come see me. Go set his field on fire. So he does. And not only that, he feels justified in killing Amnon, and he doesn't even repent of it. When he finally does come and meet, he doesn't repent of what he's done. And then here's the real problem. David restores him anyway. There's no repentance. There is no brokenness. There is, hey, I'm home. I've been trying to get a hold of you. What's up? And then so finally he meets with him, and David just forgives him. He just restores him back to his original place at home with no repentance, with no brokenness. And what this does, we're definitely not going to go into that context. That's really not the question anyway. But if you know the life of Absalom, you know this. This leads to future, future rebellion and chaos in Israel. Directly through Absalom, who tries to take the throne, who tries to kill his own dad to get the throne. That's the kind of guy we're dealing with. So why did he bring him home? To restore order to to the king's house. And why did he ignore him? I believe he didn't forgive him. He was just trying to get David's head spun on the right way again. And then, yeah, the burning the field, that was, that was an attention getter. And he came. He, he got to meet with, with uh, Joab after that. So, so that's why uh, he brought him home, and that's why he ignored him then um, until the field got burned. So any other questions or thoughts or uh, anything to add to this question? Most of you are probably like, I didn't even remember this story in the Bible. All right, we'll move on to the next one. This one's a shorter one um, and interesting. Interesting if you try and do, uh, do an internet search for this question, you get all kinds of wild stuff, man. <laughs> I'm like, these people don't even believe the Bible. So uh, what is a cockatrice and what is its significance? Go ahead and turn to Jeremiah chapter 8. Jeremiah chapter 8 because... This is where the Bible at least defines what it is. Jeremiah 8. Can I get a volunteer to read verse 17? Caleb. For behold, I will send serpents, cockatrices among you, which will not, which will not be charmed, and they shall bite you, saith the Lord. Okay. Hmm? Okay. Okay. So this is where, I mean, the Bible really does define it by, you see those commas in there? He's basically giving you a definition. What, what is a cockatrice? Or, well, like serpents, and then he gets specific and says cockatrices. So you know from this that a cockatrice is, in fact, a serpent. It's a serpent. And you see that here. From the best uh, study and searching I could find, it is a hooded, venomous serpent, likely an Egyptian cobra likely an Egyptian cobra. If you try searching for this online, uh, it is just mind-numbing. It's, it, there, there's got to be a thousand sites dedicated to trying to disprove the Bible because it uses this word. Because they believe that it's a mythological creature and, uh, and that the, if this is really inspired by God, why would he put a mythological creature in there? Well, people who've actually studied it say, no, they really believe it's an Egyptian cobra, that it was a, a hooded venomous serpent that, that would bite. And, uh, but yeah, I mean, it is just nuts out there. Even Bible believers that are, that are talking about, well, that, they just used the wrong word. It should really be this and all this other nonsense. And I'm just like, 
This was an interesting question to try and deal with. For such a short thing, it was like, there is so much out there about this that it just seems so false and twisted. So what it is, it's just a serpent. It's a snake. Uh, likely, likely an Egyptian cobra. Its significance, we're not going to dive deep into this because we did last time we were here. So sorry you weren't here last time, but I did record it so I can get it to you somehow. So, uh, so what is its significance? Let's go ahead and turn to Isaiah 59 because I believe this is where it really launches into its significance. Um, I feel like to, I mean, praying, reading, studying. I mean, the word only shows up four or five times in all of Scripture. So when it comes to just diving into the Scripture to find an answer, there's, it's, it's really hard to pick apart because you don't have a lot of, of Scripture to, to really study out the word. Um, but what I really land on, especially in the context of these next uh, few references here, I believe it's this, this is part of that spiritual seed of Satan that we talked about last time when we went through Genesis 3.15 and it talks about um, how God will put enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent and we broke down the spiritual seed of the serpent. I believe that the cockatrice would fall right into that same thing. A, a venomous, biting serpent would fall right into that same spiritual seed of the devil himself. So in Isaiah 59 verses 1 through 5, uh, just to keep the, the context here <clears throat> and who it's even talking about, because when we talk about the spiritual seed of Satan, uh, it's like when Jesus said, I believe it's in John chapter 8, when the Pharisees are coming against him, and he tells them, ye are of your father the devil. Boom. Spiritual seed of the devil. Those who have made up their own religion in that context and of the nation of Israel, this is exactly what we find here in Isaiah 59. These are the same people. They weren't Pharisees at the time, but boy, this is that same group. So in Isaiah 59, verses 1 through 5, it says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies, your tongue hath muttered perverseness. None calleth for justice, nor any pleadeth for truth. They trust in vanity and speak lies. They conceive mischief and bring forth iniquity. And before we go into the next verse, doesn't this sound like the, the nation of Israel, the Pharisees at this time? It was all about the outward show. And inside, this is exactly what they were like. And this is before Israel is taken captive into, to Assyria and into Babylon. God is saying this. This was Israel at this time. They've become the spiritual seed of Satan. They've abandoned all things that are God, and they're following after the devil. None are calling for justice. None are even pleading for the truth. They're trusting in their vanity, and they're speaking lies. They're, con they, uh, they're conceiving mischief, and they're bringing forth iniquity. And then the next point is, they hatch cockatrice's eggs and weave the spider's web. He that eateth, the, eateth of their eggs dieth. And that which is crushed breaketh out into a viper. Again, we start to get this picture that a cockatrice, serpent, viper. What I believe we're seeing here is that spiritual seed of Satan. It's that spiritual seed. And we see the cockatrice because he is the serpent. So this cockatrice, as we see it in this context, he's talking about people. But he's calling, saying that they hatch cockatrice's eggs. 
So, the spiritual seed of Satan. Let's go ahead and turn to Isaiah 14. Isaiah 14. Turn our way backward. Again, a lot of you guys are familiar with this. If you've been discipled, you had to memorize it. Maybe you still or maybe you don't have it memorized. But to, to show you even the context of the, this other time that Cockatrice shows up, you find that it's right in the same chapter where we get a description of Lucifer and his fall. So we're going to go ahead and read Isaiah 14, 12 to 15. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit. That is Lucifer. That is the devil. That is Satan who is cast out because of his sin, because of his attitude here. In, that we read in Isaiah 14. Now we jump over to chapter 29. I'm sorry, verse 29. Not chapter 29. Verse 29. He says, Rejoice not thou whole Palestina, because the rod of him that smote thee is broken. Palestina also would be uh, the Philistines. Phil Philistia. Um, that would be Palestina here. And they had been smitten by Israel. Well, now Israel's being smitten by God. Because, uh, because of their disobedience. And so he's saying, he's telling the Philistines, don't you dare rejoice because those that smote you are now being smitten. Don't rejoice. For out of the, what's root? Serpent. All right, two people were paying attention. Out of the serpent's root shall come forth a cockatrice and his fruit shall be a fiery flying serpent. Who does this sound like? A fiery flying serpent. If we were to fast forward. Yeah, the great red dragon out of the book of Revelation, who we know is Satan. Satan, the devil. And that's what he's saying is out of that serpent's root is going to come forth a cockatrice and his fruit shall be a fiery flying serpent. Palestine, or Palestina, I'm sorry, Philistia, rejoicing because the people that beat them down are now being uh, beaten down. He says, oh, no, no, don't you dare rejoice, because there's something even worse coming your way. And that's why I put, this is a, I got a pastoralism there. The devil eats his own. The devil will use whoever he needs to use to get what he wants or needs, and then he'll swallow them up whole when he has no use for them anymore. And that's what you find here. Don't you dare rejoice. Don't you dare rejoice, because what's coming for you is way worse than what has happened to them. So the devil eats his own. And that is another context where we find the cockatrice with Lucifer there, and then even talking about the serpent, and then a fiery flying serpent, the cockatrice. I believe it's the spiritual seed of Satan. And then let's go ahead and look at Isaiah 11. Isaiah 11. Because this speaks of a time when the serpent's curse will be over. The fact that, you know, he's, he's our enemy. He's always fighting against us. There will come a time when that's over. And that's exactly what Isaiah is talking about here in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 8. It says, And the suckling child shall play on the hole of the asp, which is just another poisonous snake. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the cockatrice's den. This is talking about the future after Christ has returned, after he has set all things right again. 
This is how it will be. They'll be able to play over the dens of what were once poisonous snakes with no fear of being hurt. And that doesn't happen until the devil, the serpent, is taken out forever. So when that curse is over, that's when this will be able to take place. So I believe its significance would be the spiritual seat of Satan and at times even, even like a literal reference to, to Satan himself. And there is no way we're doing the next question in five minutes. So we're going to wrap up a little bit early. Anything you guys want to add to this or anything that stood out to you? Anything you disagree with? Any other question really at this point too? You guys are quiet. Freaks me out when you're quiet. Okay. Um, just talking about the last question too. Just um, how you were talking about like how Dave, like because of David's sin, yeah, um, you started seeing um, Absalom, right? Yeah, and his sin and how literally like it. I just think that's so cool. Right, and literally throughout the whole Bible, you all, you always see that. Like, and, and, oh yeah. I mean, it's just real life. Like, it is real life. Same with families like you know that have sin issues or have sin problems. It's just cool seeing how in the Bible, like you can look at. Oh yeah. You, you can look at David. You can look at Abraham, even. Oh yeah. Any of them. Kind, yeah. There's all kinds of yeah. things that happen. Right. Because of their sin issue, that they're not willing to deal with. Like Definitely. Yeah. And especially a sin that was so public. Yeah. Like that. That with David. Right. Um, and that's what I've. I mean, I've heard it from pastors. I've heard it all over the place. What What parents do in moderation, their children will do in excess, for sure. Because you talk one way, but they're not, they're not listening. They're watching. And what they see you do, that's what they grab a hold of, and that's what they do. You can talk all day, but when they see it, oh, yeah. And they don't just do what you did. They do more and worse than what you did, right. for sure. So, right on. Anything else? Okay. Well, we'll pick back up with this question next time we come together. Never mind. Well, I was just thinking, too, like, just, like, it does make you think, like, obviously the sins of the Father, like, we can see what our parents do, but it doesn't mean we have to do those things, too, you know? Right, like, right. And we can be the, the generation that changes things, too. Like, I always right. think of that, too. Like, obviously, like, my parents were not saved when they were younger, and so and I got saved young, and so I didn't have to make those same mistakes, even if... And even, like, things that are in my life now, like, I can't justify, oh, well, they did it then, you know? Right. Now, so I think, I don't know, we, I think God writes these examples because some of this I was like, okay, this is kind of a weird question, like, to study it out. You right. Figure it out, you know? But, like, looking at it as, like, a stand, like, how could this be used in my life? I'm like, okay, I don't have to repeat those sins. Right. I don't, you know... Because it is that sins of the Father. History always repeats itself, yep. but you can be the one that stops it. Yeah. Know, oh, for sure. history, really. Yeah. I mean, if Absalom would have repented, I mean, just think how Israel's history could have completely changed and that would have affected us today. You right. Know? So, oh, yeah. There's just, I don't know, just thinking of sins yep. of the Father and all that. Yep. Yeah, and that's why, you, like, it can be confusing when you read that, like, back in the law. You know, I think it's in Deuteronomy where God says he will visit the sins of the father up, up to, like, the third and fourth generation. Yeah. Yep. And that's exactly what he's talking about. It's not that God is blaming the kids for what the parents did. It's yeah. God's pretty smart, and he knows kids see their parents do these things, and they're going to do it, and, and then typically worse, and to the third and the fourth generation. So I think, 
I mean, it does. It gets to a point sometimes where it's gotten so bad that there is that reset button where kids are like, my parents were so bad, I don't want to be anything like them. And you almost get like a hard restart, and then it can either go good or bad again. But, yeah, it does come to that point where it's like, nope, I'm not going to do this anymore. I don't want to do that. Right. Like, if, any, if I learn anything from this, because it is one of those things where you're like, why does God waste maybe a couple chapters with such horrible things? Right. But at the same time, you're like, okay. It's oh, yeah. wants to set the example, like, look, you can break the cycle. Yep. Oh, yeah. My, my dad was one of those people in his family that was a, I'm going to break the cycle mentality. Yeah. You know? And it, and it did. I mean, I look at, I look at the lives of my cousins versus to the, uh, against the, the life that I had growing up, and it's like night and day. Yeah. Because my dad was the one out of all of them that said, no, I'm not doing what they did. And I'm going to do things differently. So, Just yeah. Just to add on to kind of that sediment, too, I think that it's, like it's every generation's responsibility to have that reset button. Yeah. And to say, I'm not going to do what my parents did. Exactly. I mean, our parents are not perfect. Right. Um, and in that vein, I think what's really cool about uh, this this passage of scripture is just that, I mean, this was a, this was somebody that God said was a man after his own heart, and his family life was a disaster. Total disaster. It was a disaster. Yeah. So thinking of it that way, it's, it's really cool because no matter how bad your family life is, no matter, you know, where you are, like, like where your parents are, right. know, step uh, brothers, sisters, cousins, I mean, weird stuff going on in your family, it doesn't matter. Right. Like, it, you can still be somebody after God's own heart in the midst of that. Of the, right. You just can't let that Yeah, it can't be a crutch. Uh-huh. So. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, even when you, when you read through Israel's history, you know, David, David did his, his bad stuff. He did his bad parenting. Then you have Solomon, who at the start, you're like, sweet, this dude's rock solid. But then next thing you know, sins of the father, follows him right down. But then you keep reading through Israel's history, and you've got evil king, evil king, good king, good king, good king, evil king. Like, in every generation, that's all from David forward. But not every king fell to the sins of his father. And you yeah. see that there are those periodic, like he was a good king. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Um, then, I mean, you get to Hezekiah, you know, one of my favorites of the Old Testament, him and Josiah, but Hezekiah especially, got to the point where he had to break the brazen serpent that you read about back in the book of Numbers because Israel was worshiping this thing. And Hezekiah said, no, I'm breaking the cycle. I'm breaking the cycle. And he, he literally destroyed that thing because they were worshiping an idol that originally was a picture of Christ on the cross. Look and live. And now they're worshiping that thing instead of God, who is the one that actually allowed them to live, who actually healed them, not the thing. And so, yeah, there is. But Absalom couldn't break it. Absalom just kept whistling on in. So, very cool. Anything else? Brooke? I just think of it from a discipleship perspective. Like, whatever you do, your disciples are going to do right. 10 times more than you. Yeah. So making sure you're right with the Lord and being that example. Yep. Oh, yeah, exactly. That's exactly what it's like. Sometimes even, even more in discipleship with certain things, even than your kids. So, anything else?
All right, just a reminder, next Wednesday, we do not have church. It's the 4th of July. So we're not having church next week. Feel free to come, but you will not be able to get in. So go swing in the back or something. I don't know. But, there you go. That's what Aaron was thinking. Why didn't you bring that up? Because of the fireworks. Oh, that thing. Yeah. Okay. I was waiting for you to put that up as a joke, like July 4th is when we're doing this thing. Right. Yeah, but we are not having church next Wednesday night. So then the following Wednesday we'll be in here and we will have whole some fresh faces in here up from the senior high when we come back. Can we have like an initiation day? Uh no. And if we do, you're not invited. So yep, we'll uh we'll have the the 